Welcome to the 35th episode of Coronavirus the Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Kaur, host of the Popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert lived the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. His upcoming book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, can now be pre-ordered through Amazon and Barnes & Noble Books. All profits from the books will be donated to Doctors Without Borders. Together, we also host the Hit Fixing Healthcare podcast. You can find this episode along with helpful fact-based information on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Robbie, each week we begin the show with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. What happened and what does it mean? Jeremy, as strange as it sounds, over a year into the pandemic, this week was one of renewed uncertainty. It wasn't that we didn't have exact data on the number of new cases, hospitalizations, and deaths, but exactly what to make of the numbers proves elusive. We know that the nation saw an increase in new cases and deaths. What is uncertain is why. We can't be sure if the increase was the impact of the mutant strains. That's what's happening in Europe. But it also could be the impact of the decreased social distancing in the majority of states that we've seen over the past couple of weeks, or it could be mainly the consequences of spring break, both for college students who travel to parties and families going on vacation. Each of these explanations would require a different response. If it's the increased transmissibility of a mutant virus, most likely the one from the United Kingdom, we'd better hunker down for a long ride and prepare for a major fourth wave. If it's a spring break, the spike will pass, just a little more caution. And if it's from the diminished social distancing, we need to learn the lesson and plan to wear masks and keep six feet apart for the rest of the year until vaccination and herd immunity solves the COVID-19 problem. With over 30 million confirmed COVID-19 cases, which means most likely at least 60 million actual cases, and over 100 million people who've had at least one dose of the vaccine, there are different opinions about the best next step. Some people think that the rising number of cases means we should double down on social distancing. Others, seeing immunity growing and vaccine availability increasing, believe this is the time to open businesses and schools as soon as possible. And then there are some who see this pandemic not ending until herd immunity is achieved. And given the vaccine hesitancy that exists, they see the current disease transmission as something that's inevitable that we should just get over. Jeremy, a distressing study was published this week in the Journal of JAMA Pediatrics. It noted that 40,000 children aged 17 and under have lost a parent from COVID-19. Shows that 20% of them were black children, despite black children representing only 14% of the pediatric population. And there's been a huge amount of data published on adverse childhood events, often called ACEs, 
on the lifelong problems that children have when they experience devastating events in childhood and how it can lead to significant physical and mental health issues, even suicide. The health consequences for COVID-19 will last long after the virus is contained, and this is but another example. Robbie, you published an article on Forbes last week revisiting vaccine worries that you had last summer. Can you tell us about it? Jeremy, seven months ago, I worried that the vaccine wouldn't be effective or safe, that the underlying messenger RNA technology hadn't succeeded in yielding a commercial vaccine despite two decades of attempts, and that immunity would be short-lived. In the current article, I explain why I raised these concerns then, but why three of the five have been proven unfounded, leaving two that are still significant issues. The first remaining concern is relative to the evolution of the coronavirus into a more transmissible and lethal mutant variant. When the first article was written, the genetics of the coronavirus seemed very stable and no mutants of consequence had been identified. And when I pointed out the tremendous danger that could happen, unfortunately it proved prescient. As we've said on this show, there's one variant from the United Kingdom, another one from South Africa, one from Brazil, in addition to multiple new strains in the United States, and they all seem to be more transmissible, more easily passed from one person to another, and potentially more lethal. The second worry that I focused on that existed then and continues today is vaccine hesitancy. Although the percentage of people who say they definitely won't take the vaccine or at least want to wait has diminished. There still is a significant part of the population who say that they never will take it, or if they do, they're gonna need a huge amount more information. And it seems that politics, rather than science, is playing a big role in this resistance to being vaccinated. Many of the people are conservative politically with distrust of government officials and skepticism about public health agencies. What's interesting, Jeremy, is that individuals who are liberal tend to express confidence in the same agencies and spokespersons. And this split that's been talked about in general terms throughout the pandemic has now been studied through the Gallup poll of 35,000 Americans. And somewhat unexpectedly, the survey highlights that false perceptions are equally sized between conservatives and liberals, but just going in opposite directions. According to Jonathan Rothwell, the principal economist at Gallup, quote, Republicans consistently underestimate risks, while Democrats consistently overestimate them. 
For instance, more than a third of Republican voters believe that the virus can't be spread by people without symptoms, and that fewer people are dying from COVID-19 than from the flu or car accidents. What we know is that 40% of transmissions occur from asymptomatic people, and that 15 times as many people died last year from the coronavirus than from the flu or auto accidents. But simultaneously, Democratic voters believe that 20% of people with COVID-19 were hospitalized, and that a significant percentage of deaths occurred in children. The facts are that hospitalization rate is about 1%, and that only 0.04% of COVID deaths were among Americans under 18. These misconceptions help explain the resistance of Republicans to mask wearing and the resistance of Democrats to the opening of schools. Last year, we talked about the Pareto Principle, the so-called 80-20 rule. We stressed the value of mask wearing on one hand and the continuation of in-person schooling, assuming six-foot distancing and masking were maintained on the other. This Gallup data helped elucidate why as a nation we're failing at doing both. Rather than being surgical in our response to COVID-19, we've taken a one-size-fits-all approach with disastrous consequences in terms of the loss of life and educational harm. And the blame can be shared by people at both ends of the political spectrum. The good news is that when people were given the true data in this Gallup poll work, opinions shifted. Republicans were open to taking precautions and Democrats upon learning that the American Academy of Pediatrics favored in-person schooling were more open to doing so. Reading this report, Jeremy, made me glad that our show, The Coronavirus, The Truth, that we began over a year ago, focuses solely on the facts. And hopefully our listeners, regardless of their political persuasions, have learned what the truths are, and as a result, have minimized their misperceptions. Of related interest, an editorial in the prestigious journal Science made a powerful point this week. It warned readers not to confuse vaccine hesitancy with the anti-vaxxer, anti-scientific community. The editorial pointed out that the anti-vaxxers are trying to tell the world, quote, COVID-19 is not dangerous, the vaccine is dangerous, and vaccine advocates cannot be trusted. As we know, the data on the risk for the disease and the efficacy and safety of the vaccines tell the opposite story. But in contrast to the anti-vaxxers, this group of hesitant individuals have concerns that are based on real information, such as the speed by which the vaccines were created. And they have personal experiences with the medical system and elected officials that have led them to distrust the public health promises and the medical establishment. These individuals are more likely to be influenced by anti-vaxxer misinformation than the general population, but they are open to learning the facts. 
If as doctors and as a nation, we want to earn their trust, we need to listen to their fears and provide fact-based information in unbiased and empathetic ways. And that will remain the goal and the commitment of our show, Coronavirus, The Truth. Robbie, my sense is that when it comes to vaccination, we're getting to a have and have not world and even a we versus them mentality. What's new? Jeremy, you are right. Battle lines are being drawn in a variety of ways. The first issue is whether there should be what is being called vaccination passports. Electronic documents verifying who has completed the vaccination process and who has not. Here, the issues are complex and not well understood. At first glance, it doesn't seem overly problematic to provide travelers with documentation that they have been fully vaccinated. In fact, we do that for a few diseases already, such as yellow fever. But as often the case with COVID-19, the real issues and the differences of opinion go deeper than a simple travel certificate. The first is agreeing on the appropriate role of the government in healthcare. And the second is how will the information be used? In general, the role of government, I believe, is to recommend that people do things that improve their own health, such as better diet and exercise, but mandate things that put other people at great risk. Assuming that vaccines are readily available to everyone at no cost, and the concerns about safety and efficacy are addressed, then the issue is whether enforcing vaccination is designed to protect the person or the general population. If it's the former, then why should the government be creating two classes of people? Why not just leave it up to individuals how much risk they want to take? But if it's the latter, then why not broadly mandate vaccinations? As we do with vaccines for other diseases, or at least prohibit unvaccinated individuals from participating in potentially super spreader events like arena and bars. You know, when there was no vaccine and hospitals were being overrun, the public health risks were clear. And closure of large indoor facilities and mask mandates were the only were the only options for the greater good. But now with vaccines being readily available, the answers are becoming less clear. And often, as we said before, dependent upon people's political persuasions. Despite the hesitancies of many to a government issued vaccine passport, including the Biden administration, the idea uh, is being embraced by a growing number of businesses, sports teams, and schools. The Miami Heat, an NBA basketball team will require proof of vaccination to get into games. Vaccinated fans will be required to wear masks, but they can sit closer to other fans in specially designated areas of the arena, increasing ticket availability. Similarly, the New York Knicks and New York Rangers, teams that play basketball and hockey in Madison Square Garden, are also planning to require fans to show proof of vaccination 
or a negative COVID-19 test. They say they already make fans prove they're 21 years of age and over to drink alcohol, and they force them to show their tickets to enter the lower level seats. So this won't be particularly hard to also demand vaccination proof. And Rutgers University will acquire all students to be vaccinated against COVID-19 before returning to in-person classes this fall. The school will allow exceptions for medical or religious reasons, and students participating virtually won't have to provide the proof of vaccination. And to facilitate the requirement for on-campus in-person learning, the state of New Jersey will make the vaccine available to students on campus once the school year begins. Robbie, a listener asked about traveling to the Caribbean and asked how soon after being vaccinated people have immunity? Is it safe to travel? And uh, one common question I've been getting as well is, after you've been fully vaccinated, can you return to completely normal life? Jeremy, both the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines decrease risk of infection by 80% by two weeks after the first of the two shots and by 90% by two weeks after the second one, based on a new study from the CDC. This research used actual US post-vaccination data. And the danger of severe disease and death by two weeks after the second shot is close to zero. Israeli data has demonstrated a 94% efficacy against symptomatic infection by two weeks after the first shot. Putting these various pieces together, what we can conclude is that the vaccines are highly effective and safe. Travel always creates some risk when it comes to COVID-19, particularly in the context of the new mutant variants. However, if the listener is only concerned about the timing, any time after two weeks following the second shot is when he should book his flight for maximal protection. Your question on returning back to normal is a very difficult one for two reasons. The first is that when a vaccine is 90 or 95% effective, it still means that one person in 10 or one person in 20 potentially could become sick. Now, we know so far that their risk of needing hospitalization or dying is extremely low, but that can change, which takes us to the second part, which is this constant evolution of these mutants. And unfortunately, we're not gonna know when that happens until after it has occurred and we can look back and see the increased transmission and the unexpected deaths. So I think we're back in the 80-20 rule, the same place we've been throughout COVID-19. At this point, it doesn't make sense, even though people are vaccinated, to, in quotes, go back to the old normal. It doesn't make sense to be sitting in large arenas indoor watching basketball with no mask on, with people very close to you on both sides. At the same time, it also doesn't make sense to stay isolated and distant from other folks when the risks to one's health are relatively low 
And that, of course, is assuming that the individual does not have severe underlying disease, in which case, again, added caution makes the most sense. When it comes to COVID-19, one size can't fit all. And as in many other aspects of life, there are always risks with whatever decision are made, and each person needs to balance them in the context of their own life, their health conditions, and their willingness to take a small risk for a big gain. Robert, the U.S. has purchased over 600 million doses of various vaccines, and more will be coming. And when you exclude kids under 16 and those individuals who won't be seeking it, the total number of people who are likely to vaccinate will be no more than 250 million. Robbie, what will we do with the excess vaccine and doesn't it have a shelf life? Jeremy, this is a problem, but a good problem for our nation to have. And yes, our country will have a vaccine surplus sometime this summer. In fact, we've been criticized by many other nations, particularly poor countries, that have yet to been able to administer their first vaccine due to an inability to access the drug itself. And they've asked us to release some of the vaccine that we have for their use. But there are always complicating issues when it comes to COVID-19. The math could be wrong, depending upon several factors in the future. First, as mutants develop, there's the possibility that public health officials will recommend a third shot to booster immunity, in which case we'll need all the doses we have. And then with research being done on kids, they too may use some of the excess by the time school begins this fall. And of course, there's still the issue of how long immunity will last. We know it's at least six to nine months. And I say that, and I want to be sure that listeners understand, it could be a lot longer. It's just that we've only been giving the vaccine for that time period, so we can only be sure that the immunity lasts for as long as we've been able to observe it. But come the end of the year, it may turn out that the vaccine immunity has diminished, and people will be lining up for additional booster shots. But come the end of the year, we may learn that immunity doesn't last more than 12 or 15 months, and there'll be people lining up for booster doses, and we'll need it once again, the vaccine that we have. At the same time, as demand for the vaccine diminishes, our country could find ourselves as early as the end of May having to waste doses as vials are being incompletely used each day and their content needs to be discarded for safety reasons that night. It's not that vaccine can't be stored for prolonged time periods at super cold conditions. It's just that once we open the vials and add the liquid that's necessary to create the vac vaccine itself, that the material must be used, we now think within a 24-hour period, we used to think in a much shorter time period. Now, so far, the federal government has been willing to loan vaccine to other nations with their promise to pay the U.S. back in the future, assuming that we need it. 
But as you say, theoretically, once all the vaccine that has been promised to our government is received, we theoretically could vaccinate 650 million people, twice the total population. So I think pressure will grow for the United States to release some of the extra vaccine it has to other nations, once again, particularly the poorer ones that may not be able to afford to purchase the vaccine themselves. Now, one option has been discussed is for the US to give away the AstraZeneca vaccine that we have. Remember that this vaccine has not yet been approved in the United States, and it is a vaccine that many other nations are currently using. To a large extent, this would be a logical solution for the United States, because even without the AstraZeneca vaccine, we'll have enough between the Moderna and the Pfizer and the J&J &J and a couple of others that look like they'll be here sometime in 2021. But there's great fear amongst global health leaders that given the AstraZeneca problems that we discussed in the previous show about issues of blood clots, possibly even lower efficacy, that if the United States moved in this way, it would be seen negatively. And that it would appear that we're dumping a risky product on unsuspecting individuals in other countries, particularly those with lower socioeconomics. In many ways, this is a great problem to have, but one for which there is not a clear and easy solution. Robbie, speaking of the AstraZeneca vaccine, what is new on that front? Jeremy, talk about taking two steps forward and then one or maybe one and a half back. This company continues to be either very unlucky or unable to avoid tripping over itself. This week, it finally released all of its phase three data. And even though the results were 3% worse than the media release that we talked about in the last podcast, the vaccine was still 76% effective at preventing symptomatic COVID-19 infection and 100% effective at avoiding severe illness and death. We would have taken those measures of efficacy in a heartbeat last fall. And yet the fears of a blood clots persist with women aged 40 to 60 seemingly to be at the greatest danger. In response, Germany has restricted the use of the vaccine in women under the age of 60. Canada has restricted it in people under the age of 55. Even if it turns out that this vaccine is equal in safety to others, its brand is likely to be questioned for years. Already, the opportunity to be vaccinated with the AstraZeneca vaccine has exceeded the number of Germans wanting to take it. The overall risk for these various complications is rare, but when they happen, they can prove fatal. How often do they occur? The estimates vary. Somewhere between one in 100,000 and one in a million, depending upon the study. 
I predict it will be weeks or even months before everything is back on track for this company. And we have a clear sense about the vaccine and either restrict it broadly or more likely proceed with confidence that it will protect the individuals who obtain it and be safe for, the, for its recipients. Robbie, our good news segment is valued by listeners looking for something positive in the pandemic. Uh, what do you got for us this week? Jeremy, one piece of positive news is that several studies have shown that in large populations, the efficacy of the vaccine continues to be confirmed. You know, often when new drugs are administered broadly after the more limited phase three trials, the results prove worse than had been expected since the test candidates during the trial period were chosen by the pharmaceutical manufacturer and often they were individuals more likely to get a good response or avoid a complication. But here that wasn't the case. Both in Israel and the US, healthcare workers were followed after receiving the vaccine and in both nations, new infections were extremely rare. In a study of healthcare workers at the University of California, San Diego, new infections were 2.5% after one week, dropping to 1.2% after the second week and 0.7% the third week and down to 0.2% by two weeks after the second dose. Similarly in a North Texas medical facility, the infection rate was 0.05% for fully vaccinated individuals versus 2.61% for unvaccinated employees or almost a 50 times higher rate of infection for individuals who have not received the vaccine. And the Israeli data, not only was the vaccine effective, but it was so in spite of a huge surge of the variant from the United Kingdom, B117, the strain that's rapidly increasing in the US. A further encouraging piece of news happened a few days ago. Moderna received FDA approval to put 15 doses in each vial of its vaccine rather than the current 10. As we said in a previous show, vial creation has been a limiting step in maximizing vaccine availability. And this approval will facilitate the manufacturing and distribution of Moderna's highly effective vaccine. A final piece of good news comes from Duke University, where they estimate that 12 billion doses of 13 different vaccines will be available by year's end, capable of vaccinating 70% of the world's population. Jeremy, that would be such an amazing outcome for a vaccine development process that had yet to be proven a mere six months ago. Robbie, you're right about how fast the process of development, approval, and administration has gone. Uh, where does that leave the U.S. on willingness of people to get vaccinated? The good news is the percentage of people reluctant to be vaccinated is dropping. According to a CDC study, only 17% of individuals say they definitely or probably won't take the vaccine. That's down from 22% two months ago. Reluctance continues to be highest in the South. 
Another good part of the study showed that hesitancy among Black Americans has diminished even faster than the population overall. This is very encouraging since the mortality rate in this demographic population is two to three times higher than among white Americans. Two months ago, the gap was 13%, and this most recent survey, it had shrunk down to a 5% gap between the willingness of black patients and white patients to receive the vaccine. The group most reluctant to be vaccinated, young adults age 18 to 39. Among this demographic, nearly 25% say they probably or definitely won't get the shot. And as we've said on this podcast before, although their chances of dying are less than older individuals, they're equally likely to become infected and continue to pass the virus to others of all ages. And it's not that there are no hospitalizations or deaths, and there are a moderate number of people in this age group with the long hauler syndromes that we discussed in last week's show. How are the demographics of who is getting sick shifting now that a vaccine is here? As older individuals are getting vaccinated, people under 60 now account for the majority of COVID-19 cases across the United States. The good news is that their risk of needing hospitalization and dying is much lower than for older people. The bad news is that they are more likely to participate in super spreader type events, potentially accelerating the number of cases across the United States and leading to a fourth wave of infections. With three-fourths of adults age 65 and older vaccinated, the majority of ER visits for COVID-19 among 25 to 49-year-olds now exceeds patients who are 65 and older. As a result, the demographic with the most rapid increase in hospitalization is now people in their 50s. The combination of spring break and increasing travel have led to an overall rise in infections. What's unclear is how much of that increase is a result of the growing prevalence of the new viral strains, particularly the one that began in the United Kingdom. The most recent data indicates that approximately 25% of cases involve this B117 variant. And if the growing number of infections reflect the greater contagiousness of this mutant, states could be seeing exponential growth again in the number of cases in the near future. The studies so far indicate that the vaccines that are currently available protect against the strain, but of course that could all change as the virus continues to mutate. What we're seeing is more and more young people infected with COVID-19 compared to the size of the population that is getting the coronavirus among older individuals. But once again, this is a dynamic process that is happening with the mutants being the wild card in the total equation. Robbie, last time on the show, we talked about the WHO study about death rates and obesity globally. Um, there was also a new study from the CDC that said 78% of the people in America who were hospitalized with COVID were either overweight or obese. 
This again goes to show how dangerous the obesity epidemic in America is. I saw in an article on JAMA that uh, 340, that 345,323 Americans died of COVID-19 in 2020. COVID-19 was all over the news and people were terrified. People go to great lengths to protect themselves from it. That being said, According to that same article, 690,882 people died from heart disease last year, 159,050 died of stroke, 101,106 people died of diabetes in America. Why aren't Americans in the media looking at obesity with the same fear and precautions that they do with COVID-19? I don't even remember the last time I saw the obesity epidemic addressed in the news not related to COVID, and even then it's a footnote, if anything. I think the last time it was a big thing in the news was when Michelle Obama led the efforts to make school lunch healthier. Do you see this info out of the CDC and WHO making any sort of difference in how America and the American healthcare system and the American media, as well as American individuals, address the obesity epidemic? I know in your upcoming book, you talk about physician culture and how that plays into it. But as you and I discussed before the show, the problem is much, much bigger than just that. Robbie, if you were the health czar of America, how would you use the information about obesity, how much deadlier it made COVID-19, as well as all the other issues it causes to help raise awareness and battle the obesity epidemic in America that is much, much, much deadlier and much less feared than COVID-19? Jeremy, you are raising a very important health issue. And you're also pointing to a complex type of cultural concern. As you noted in my book on caring how the culture of medicine kills doctors and patients, I point out that the cultural, we can call it tide, often isn't noticed minute by minute, but it has tremendous consequences in my book on physicians and patient care, and you're raising a couple of other areas relative to the media and overall healthcare concerns. So let me try to take a couple of the pieces you talk about in more detail. Obesity is, accounts for much of the type two diabetes that we see in the United States today with a third of Americans either having type two diabetes now or being what we label pre-diabetic, meaning that if nothing changes in the future, they will develop diabetes. And diabetes is a tremendous cause, heart disease, blindness, peripheral vascular disease with need for amputation, kidney failure, it should be, as you describe, central to our healthcare concerns, but it's not. You talk about the media. The media likes to focus on the new events, something that is many, many times larger, but continues year to year, gets ignored. As you say, we don't talk about heart disease very often, even though it's the number one killer in the United States. We prefer to focus on something that is different 
even if far less consequential. And the contribution of obesity to diabetes and to heart disease is major. In the book on caring, I talk about how in the culture of medicine, doctors don't see prevention as important as intervention. They don't focus on the ways to prevent the vessels to the heart being occluded. They prefer to celebrate the moments when physicians can unblock them. It's a major reason why the United States amongst the 12 most industrialized nations is last in life expectancy as far as five years behind other countries, despite spending 50% more in healthcare per person than almost any other nation on the globe. If I were in a position of leadership, I would focus on health as much as disease. I'd focus on things like nutrition. And the problem when you get something like nutrition and health is you need to look at socioeconomic issues, access to fresh fruit and vegetables, both in terms of proximity and cost. You need to start looking at fast foods and the way they provide large calories at low cost, but associated with significant health consequences. I would eliminate sugar in soda as something that adds tremendously to obesity and accounts for a significant number of deaths, something that has no nutritional value. I'd be looking at exercise and schools and health and education and classes and opportunities to learn ways to cook differently, to keep one's family healthier. But again, there are going to be economic costs to making those type of investments. I would take very much a public health approach, approaching ways that we can maximize the health of everyone, starting with the youngest of children, there is so much, Jeremy, that we can do. It's just that in the culture of medicine, we don't place high value on it. In the culture of media, we don't spend much time talking about it. And in the culture of the politics of America, it takes second place behind other issues, ones that are less difficult, less complex, and benefit certain segments of society, not necessarily those at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder. Jeremy, you know a lot of people have been reticent to take the vaccine given the speed of development. From your perspective, what's it gonna take to convince them that the vaccine is safe and effective and that getting vaccinated is far better than getting COVID-19, even if you're unlikely to die from the infection. Robbie, you know, I, I hate to beat a dead horse here, but I think, you know, again, had this pandemic not been so politicized by our government leaders in the media, we wouldn't have the hesitancy problems we're seeing. 
to your point earlier in the episode, you know, many conservatives I know are much more concerned about the vaccine and liberals are much more concerned about the virus. Uh, what's fascinating is how right you are about that. You know, many of the conservatives I know act like COVID is nothing more than a common cold unless you have comorbidities or are elderly. And many of the liberal people I know, you know, look at the virus as, as much more deadly than it actually is. Don't get me wrong, it's dangerous and deadly, but a lot of them treat it like as it was dangerous and deadly as Ebola. And I think the behavior of the people on both extremes is so off-putting to the people who don't belong to either extreme. There's so much politicization and spin and misinformation going on with the pandemic that you know, even though we have healthcare experts out there, people don't know who to trust. The speed at which the vaccine came out is very concerning to people. I hear people say they're worried about the long-term effects of the vaccine. Uh, probably the most common concerns I'm hearing are giving vaccines to children when they're very you know, young and unlikely to die from the virus and young women getting the vaccine during or before their childbearing years. I often hear, you know, Reference that early on, there was a polio vaccine that was con that was found to cause birth defects and had to be changed. And to be honest, I think these concerns make sense because of how new the vaccine is. I think if we want to help encourage your average everyday people to get vaccinated, we really need to end the politicization, spin, and propaganda about the virus and its vaccines. I think above all else, it's just going to take time and more concrete and better communicated data from experts around the big concerns. Like, can we really know if there are long-term side effects when it's so new? Are we all guinea pigs right now? What do we know about children when it is their turn to get vaccinated? Um, do they even really need it because they're so young and so unlikely to die from it? And like I said, Robbie, the one I hear the most is do we have any data at all around women in their childbearing years and potential birth defects in their future children. Robbie, you're the expert on a lot of this stuff and you follow this stuff much more closely than I do. Do we have any data around you know, these major concerns? And what are your thoughts around what I said? Jeremy, my information comes from the published studies. And as we've said, the data so far look very good. Women who are pregnant and develop COVID-19 have a higher risk of miscarriage. And theoretically, the coronavirus could impact the developing fetus. So it's not as though it's no risk against risk. It's specific to risk versus risk. And the good news is that the women who have been vaccinated so far, I believe I saw a number around 10,000 have yet to have any complications that are unexpected relative to their pregnancy, delivery, or the birth of their child. Having said that, it's still very early in the process, and we're gonna to continue to follow it, but based upon all the published data that I've seen and the recommendations coming from the National obstetrical societies, women who are pregnant are urged to get the vaccine as a means not only to protect themselves, but to protect their unborn child, since the antibodies 
that they develop get taken through the umbilical cord to the baby and the children who are being born have protection in the early months following delivery. Jeremy, even though the US has led the world in vaccine development and manufacturing, the Chinese and the Russians have taken the lead in providing them to other countries around the globe. As an historian, does this concern you relative to our country's influence in the future? Even over a half century later, few have forgotten our nation's efforts to rebuild Europe after World War II. Robbie, yes, it is concerning to me, and, and to be honest, very much so. You know, a lot of people have a hard time, you know, even fathoming this, but America was not the superpower it is today until World War II and its aftermath. Uh, we did a lot to help Europe rebuild, and that was remembered. Um, in recent decades, though, our international reputation has gone downhill significantly. You know, we went from being viewed as the saviors of World War II to, in a lot of places, an international bully. We, we miss many humanitarian crises that we could help out with, but are quick to, you know, help with regime change in foreign countries where we may have strategic interests. Um, I believe that, yes, we need to focus on taking care of our nation's citizens, and we should be focusing on them as well as addressing issues here at home. That being said, as the world's sole superpower, we really need to make an effort from an ethical as well as a strategic and PR standpoint to be better at helping less fortunate countries. Our days as the sole superpower are numbered, as many experts believe. It won't be all that long until China's economy leapfrogs ours. Goodwill goes both ways. You know, we never know when there will be another major conflict or natural disaster or who knows what, where we may be in the need of assistance from other countries. And I know, again, right now it could be very, very, very hard to fathom, but these things happen. And countries remember if you help them in their time of need. We really need to keep that same presence internationally that we did right after World War II, in my opinion. Robbie, a listener wrote that for so long, there appeared to be a vaccine shortage. Why are states opening up their criteria so fast? What we're seeing is our nation reaching a tipping point. Until now, demand for the vaccine has greatly exceeded supply. As a result, injection sites have been able to effectively use all the vaccine that they had been given to protect people vulnerable to COVID-19. But with 75% of these elderly individuals vaccinated, we're starting to see supply exceed demand in several locations, particularly in states like Texas and Kansas. The projections are that sometime in May, this is likely to become a common challenge for most states in the United States. And by expanding the criteria and eliminating age as a factor that will be able to maximize the number of people vaccinated with the least vaccine wastage. Of course, doing so means that some people who are older or with multiple chronic diseases could find it hard to get the vaccine, which would be problematic. But states are hoping that won't be the case as the total vaccine availability expands. Of interest, a new challenge that these loosened criteria have created is a decrease in the number of people volunteering to work in vaccination centers. The reason is that for many younger people, 
participating in a site was the only means they had to get vaccinated. But with the vaccine becoming available to anyone over 16, no longer is that the case. The debate continues between advocates for getting the most people vaccinated as quickly as possible as the safest way to reach herd immunity and others who believe the vaccine efforts still should be directed to the populations most at risk of needing hospitalization or dying. They fear that these individuals often with limited access to online scheduling and with transportation issues will be locked out of being vaccinated and this will cause unnecessary loss of life. With new cases rising above 70,000 per day and social distancing diminishing, both perspectives seem valid. I keep hearing about younger and younger kids possibly getting the vaccine. As you know, I have a, a little son and he's gonna be uh, getting in kindergarten next year. So I'm very interested about what's going on with this. What's new and what's happening? Jeremy, the data on vaccinated children is growing more positive by the week. Pfizer recently announced the vaccine was 100% effective in protecting against COVID-19 in kids age 12 to 15. Among the 2,260 children they studied, there were 18 infections in the kids given the placebo and none in the group given the vaccine. And there's no reason why we can't expect studies of even younger kids to be equally effective, although we'll need to wait for the results before we modify the current recommendations. Pfizer has already begun trials in children aged six months to 11 years. The focus on the research will not only be on the efficacy and safety, but also figuring out the right dose for small young children. But particularly as we look at kids under six, I think we need to ask ourselves, why are we going to vaccinate them? You know, it might seem like a easy question, but again, as often happens with COVID-19, there are a lot of possibilities under the surface. If the reason we want to vaccinate children is danger from the infection, then of course that makes total sense and it should be encouraged. But as we know, infections are very mild in this group. If the reason is to open schools, then we'll need to decide if coronavirus vaccination will be a requirement for in-person attendance similar to other vaccines. And if the reason is the desire of our nation to reach herd immunity and overcome the difficulty that's created when 20% of the population is under 16, then that's a third reason to think about vaccinating young children. The first of these reasons, the potential harm to the children themselves can be determined scientifically by comparing health outcomes for kids who are vaccinated versus those who are not. It is why a vaccine against polio, as an example, is mandatory. The danger to the child is far greater than from the vaccine itself. But we don't yet have that kind of information about COVID-19 and not at all in children under the age of six. The second reason to vaccinate all kids is the one we've discussed on the show, the educational problems that have resulted from the lack of in-person education. But comparing educational and medical outcomes and the risk of compromising either proves very subjective and therefore in the end will be debatable. And of course, if the motivation is really the third, that we need to vaccinate children 
in order to reach herd immunity as a nation, then that's going to be extremely controversial. The need to balance societal needs and personal medical ones. And very few individuals are yet talking about this outside of epidemiologists. Now, assuming the results of these trials continue to demonstrate vaccine effectiveness without significant risk, as a nation, we're likely to encourage parents to vaccinate their kids. How parents will respond can't be predicted. The most recent data from Axios indicates that about half of parents say they're unlikely to do so, at least at first, until enough children have taken the vaccine that they can be confident that their child will be safe. As we've observed so often with COVID-19, what often seems at first to be a medical question proves in the end to be one about ethics and values and politics, questions that are far more subjective than, than scientific research can answer. In the end, as a parent, Jeremy, you'll have to decide whether the very low risk of a vaccine complication is greater than the very low risk of your son becoming sick from COVID-19? I wish I could give you a definitive answer now. Hopefully, once the current studies are complete, I'll be able to provide scientific data to at least give you a better sense of the risk of these two, fortunately, uncommon negative outcomes occurring. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com, and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, please visit the contact page on our website or send us a message on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook. Thank you for listening to Coronavirus The Truth, and have a great day.